This is Dr. Rob Harder with the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, making your world better. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? What are the biggest challenges? What are the biggest obstacles? How should nonprofits fundraise in an economy that is constantly changing? All of these reasons combined led me to start this show. And it's my hope that through this series, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear from effective leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy the show as together we hear how they are making their world better. This podcast is sponsored by DonorBox. DonorBox, helping you help others with the best donation forms in the business. Hello, listeners. I know that you love listening to podcasts, and I'm sure you love it when your nonprofit grows. But do you always know how to get the funding you need to grow your nonprofit? Well, be sure to check out our friends over at the podcast, Grant Writing and Funding, to find out how to grow funding for your nonprofit. Again, just look up Grant Writing and Funding Podcast on your podcast player to increase your grant writing skills and learn how to run a successful grant writing business. You can also check out a free grant writing class at grantwritingandfunding.com slash Rob. Well, funding is absolutely critical for all nonprofits. And there's a growing group of investors who want to invest in organizations and people who are really changing the world for the better. Now, here's my question. Is it possible to both fund the mission of a nonprofit, but also give a return to investors at the same time? Now, on the surface, this seems to be two very different and contrary purposes. However, there is one organization, a nonprofit no less, whose whole mission is to both fund causes that are making a social impact, while at the same time provide a return on their donor's investment. My guest is Jasper von Brockel. He is the CEO of RSF Social Finance. In short, RSF funds the changemakers. I think you're going to be both surprised and intrigued about how they're going about funding critical causes through this innovative funding model. Enjoy today's show. Well, Jasper, it is great to have you on the show today. Thank you, Rob. I'm delighted to be here with you today. Well, I am excited to really dive into this topic because, as I mentioned to you on the outset, uh, we've had a lot of guests talk about this creative, I'd say, movement now uh, in many circles of funding nonprofits or funding social enterprises. And what's great about the organization you're part of, they've been doing it for years. Like you truly have been way ahead of the game in terms of investing in these social good or social enterprises. So I'm excited to get into it for my listeners. So with that, Jasper is the CEO of RSF Social Finance. And what I like about, you mentioned this to me, is that you're really about funding the change makers. RSF has formed a growing community of motivated, values-driven investors investors, donors, and entrepreneurs in order to fund the changemakers, as I mentioned. Now, funding is something that is such a constant strain for nonprofit leaders, but it's also critically necessary for every nonprofit if they're going to survive. And I understand that RSF provides that funding for nonprofit organizations who are really seeking to change the world for the better. So for my audience, again, explain how RSF works and again, your role and how long you've been there. So RSF Social Finance funds the change makers, as you said. The way that we do that is by providing loans to for-profit and non-profit social enterprises throughout the United States and Canada. And in addition to that, we also work with individuals on their individual giving strategies with donor-advised funds. So we are a donor-advised fund sponsor, 
and individuals can have an account with us and can channel their giving strategies through RSF. In addition, we also invest assets, um, invest money with an impact investing lens, um, and that rounds out that profile of what we call integrated capital. The idea that entrepreneurs and nonprofits alike, and we will get to the point of that distinction not being very useful in my opinion, but the for-profit and the nonprofit organizations that are really working towards a social and or environmental mission, they need values-aligned capital. They need the capital, the funding, to actually want the same thing as what they want rather than to have their own agenda. I understand that you've supported more than 2,000 social entrepreneurs since 1984. Again, this is an organization that's been going on for a long time. And you also, you invested in these social enterprises that were both nonprofit and for-profit organizations. So talk about the pros and cons of the for-profit versus the nonprofit social enterprise structures. Has there been a difference? And if so, what are those differences? This is a really, really great question. And I thank you for asking it. Over the course of the last 37 years, RSF has worked with many organizations. About half of those 2,000 that you mentioned are for-profit enterprises, about half are not-for-profit. So it's, a really, it's really balanced. We are, by the way, a not-for-profit organization ourselves, and I personally spent a lot of my professional career in the for-profit world. So we're always with one foot in, in, in both worlds. Well, as I said in my previous comment, when talking about organizations that are actually trying to make the world a better place, the distinction between for-profit and non-profit isn't very useful. It's a tax distinction, basically, right? It's an IRS distinction. If you ask me for, a, for an organization that wants to be really successful in attracting consumers, customers, clients of the future... They need to be purpose-driven. They need to be mission-first anyway, whether they are a for-profit or a not-for-profit organization. And what we are seeing in our portfolio of social enterprises and what we have seen over the past 37 years is that there, there, there are organizations that choose a certain form when they, when they begin, you know, in the, at their inception. Some actually change it as they're going and move from a not-for-profit to a for-profit or the other way around. And we have also seen organizations that are basically doing the same thing, for instance, in food systems and being an intermediary in food systems, um, of, of which some are for-profit and others are not-for-profit. So the benefits um, of, of being a for-profit social enterprise, so I'm really zooming in on the change makers here, is that you have shareholders and you can raise equity. So to raise growth capital, that's a, that's a huge advantage um, if as an organization you are in need of that type of capital because a loan or a grant may either be difficult to get or just not the right fit. So that's an advantage. There's also a huge disadvantage of being a for-profit organization. Why? Because you have shareholders, right? So, and those shareholders um, are, and that's embedded in the law, ultimately the ones that have the, the ultimate say. Unless you're a public benefit corporation, they're actually the only ones who, who have significant governance rights. That is one of the reasons why RSF has been very supportive of and also very much involved in, in the alternative ownership movement in the United States and, and actually globally. 
where we are working actively with social enterprises and not-for-profits that are trying to support this, this emerging field in um, supporting new structures and new ways for for-profit businesses to separate the governance rights from the economic rights so that a shareholder does get a dividend and does have some economic benefit of having put money in, but they're not the only ones holding all the governance. And this is basically a way to make sure that the company is being owned by itself. So the steering wheel is in the hands of all the stakeholders and of, of the company itself, even though there are shareholders and they're part of the conversation, just not the only ones. For nonprofit, so as a nonprofit, and there is an example in the in the RSF portfolio called What Time. They're in the, they're an energy tech company. That well, technically they're not a company because they're not for profit. So a, a big drawback for them as they were growing was their inability to raise growth capital because they're a not for profit. They can't raise equity. They needed an equity type capital infusion, and they weren't able to raise it. So we actually worked with them um, on a revenue share note so that we were able to provide them with a loan, but that is structured in a different way so that it, it almost behaves like equity and can really support them in growth. Now, a huge advantage, of course, of a not-for-profit is that you can raise gift money, you can raise donations. It's also the hardest money to raise many times. But it's a huge advantage that a for-profit organization does not have. In terms of the experience that we have at RSF with our, our social enterprises, again, half of which are for-profit and half of which are not for-profit, is really around what is your revenue model. So if the revenue model um, is primarily centering around earned revenue, then a for-profit public benefit corporation or you know, a, a steward ownership or mission first type of structure might be a good fit. If it's it's really more of a charitable organization that primarily depends on gift on income as the primary source of revenue, obviously a for-profit uh, structure makes less sense. But there are clearly um, pros and cons to both forms. What I do want to say, and this was something that I, I picked up on uh, the conversation that you had several weeks ago with Matthew, was as a nonprofit, I mean, a nonprofit profit is a business too, right? The fact that our goal is not to make profit doesn't mean that we don't need to make money, right? You bring really a lot of interesting things that I want to kind of follow up back on. First, though, I want to talk about this whole idea of what you're doing when it comes to for-profit organizations. The reason I say that is I've had guests on the show that represent businesses, whether they have a social enterprise staff person actually on the role, so to speak, on the leadership team within a business. Or we've also had businesses like Qualtrics that's based out of Utah that have a foundation and they do great work fighting cancer. And so in your role, do you foresee more businesses developing their own social enterprise within the company or developing a foundation, but that's still tied directly to the company versus investing in nonprofits that already exist. Do you see a trend one way or the other from your vantage point there at RSF? I see a convergence of the two. So two great examples or probably three great examples are Patagonia, Unilever, and Danone. And with varying degrees of success, which I won't go into right now, 
corporations, especially those that are focused on consumers, realize that consumers want to work or want to buy from companies and from brands and organizations that align with their values. And every single study says that millennials, as the largest uh, group in, in terms of purchasing power, are really basing a lot of their purchasing decisions on their perception of the values orientation and the mission of the, the brands and the companies that they buy from. So there's a movement from the larger, typical for-profit companies towards being much more focused on a purpose that's bigger than making money. Because if that is their sole purpose, their brands will, will not succeed. And this is a, a trend that we have seen for a few years now that a lot of those blue chip companies are buying up purpose-driven, for-profit, but it's sometimes also not-for-profit organizations because they need to train that muscle and to build that muscle in order to be attractive for consumers in the future. So that's one trend. The other trend is that a lot of the, the for-profit businesses that had established foundations, either for tax reasons or for PR reasons, or you know some that really believed in the work that those foundations um, do, are asking themselves to what extent that nonprofit work should actually inform the core business in the for-profit and vice versa. And whether it's really useful to have a separation there one example that comes to mind outside of the RSF context, but that I like to, um, to share when thinking about this is the Coca-Cola company that has a huge not-for-profit initiative around getting uh, drinking water in the hands of poor marginalized communities, for instance, in rural Africa. Now, that not-for-profit work is great. Don't get me wrong. I am not judgmental about it. The big question that's up for me is, how is selling sugar water and making a ton of money out of that compatible with the issues that you're trying to solve in your foundation and in your nonprofit? So how do we think about, and also thinking about philanthropy, so to what extent does philanthropy help solve the issues that were created with the companies that made the money in the first place? Right. And that is, that's a major topic when, when thinking about for profit businesses having a nonprofit leg. And consumers are increasingly asking critical questions about it. So the, the, the distinction, um, I think, is becoming more and more blurry. And the question really is what is the value and the impact that a for profit or a not for profit organization um, is generating? What are they actually doing that makes a difference? And the, the corporate structure is secondary. That's the trend I'm seeing. You've said something really interesting. And I think this is, my guess is my listeners will be thinking about this, this tension between on the one hand, having a return on your investment, which you're providing your uh, investors, but also a mission impact of these organizations and social enterprises that you're giving money towards. You know, I know that it takes a while sometimes to have true mission impact. And it doesn't always have an immediate, you know, return on investment in terms of financial, you know, return. Tell us about a time where you felt that tension, where you know that there was, this is the right organization, this is the right investment, but it wasn't really turning you know, uh, into a return on the investment in a 
quick enough time frame for your investors to feel good about it. Have you had that situation? If so, tell us about that tension. How did you resolve that? I feel that tension every day, Rob, every day. And it is a, it's a really fascinating topic, the whole story of returns, of financial returns. And the way that we think about this at RSF is that there's the, there's the vector of, of longevity, right? So how long, what, what is your, how patient are you until you need to see a financial return? So that's one element. But the other element is also, and this is quite unconventional, is call it crazy, who gets the return, right? So there may be a financial return. Who's the recipient? Who's the beneficiary? of that financial return. Does it ha- always have to be the, the financial investor at 100% or maybe not? And the way that we practice this at RSF is with the so-called community pricing gatherings. And a community pricing gathering is a quarterly meeting between investors in our loan fund and borrowers who, who borrow money out of the loan fund together with RSF. And rather than setting the rate of return for the investors and the, the, the interest rate that the borrowers pay, have that determined by the market, we have it determined by the community. So we do not anchor those, those rates with LIBOR or some, you know, some market rate that we get out of the Wall Street Journal. We have the community get together. Not everybody, because we have 2,000 investors and about 100 borrowers. So it's a selection, but it varies quarter by quarter. So we invite new people every time to participate. And then we have a conversation about the reality on the ground of a decision um, to either increase or decrease the return. And it's, it's fascinating, Rob. It's, it's really fascinating. I've done this three, you know, three plus years now. Every quarter, I'm, I'm sitting in those um, community pricing gatherings. And as investors, usually come to the table with the idea, how could I leave this meeting with a higher return for myself? Borrowers usually come to a meeting like that with an agenda of how can I leave this meeting paying less on my loan, right? And how are we going to do this negotiation? What happens in those meetings is because people hear each other's reality, they start asking. So an investor will ask a borrower, well, gosh, if if you need to make really tough decisions, if you need, you know, need to pay more on your loan, then maybe I can forego that one Starbucks cappuccino a week that represents, you know, an increase in the rate. Like I couldn't care less. And an investor conversely might say, well, you know, borrower, are you, are you guys okay? Are you, are you getting out of this what you need? So this becomes a relationship driven way of looking at returns and a needs-based way of looking at returns. Many of your listeners might, might think, Jasper, that's, that sounds really romantic and, you know, it's, it's a really nice, crazy idea. It'll never work. It has worked for 12 years and it has helped us through two major economic crises. Also, because we were not exposed to only the market forces, we don't work in a vacuum. So the market forces are real. But it's really different to have a community of investors and a community of borrowers really understand what the impact is on each other of a change in the rate. 
We'll be right back. Are you looking for an easy and effective way to boost your nonprofit's donations? Look no further than DonorBox, the online fundraising platform that streamlines your fundraising efforts, maximizes donations, and simplifies giving for your supporters. With DonorBox, you can create beautiful donation forms, accept digital wallet payments, track donations, and send auto receipts. And the best part? There are no setup or monthly fees and no long-term contracts required. So what are you waiting for? Visit DonorBox.org today to get started. That is www.donorbox.org. Do you want a clear step-by-step system to write grants so that your nonprofit secures funding in a stress-free manner? Well, check out the free grant writing class, How to Write Winning Grants in Seven Proven Steps. You will walk away with seven nuggets of grant writing clarity and a free action workbook so you can start writing higher quality grants today. Just watch this free class now at grantwritingandfunding.com slash Rob. Again, that's grantwritingandfunding.com slash Rob. Hey friends, thanks so much for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast. If this is your first time listening to us, I want to make sure you're aware of a whole group of other episodes with fascinating guests that I previously interviewed. Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. There you'll find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country and even from different countries all trying to make their world better. I also want to encourage you to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with others. This will help us get this great content out to more nonprofit leaders just like you. Now, finally, if you want to get my monthly email update that contains more resources in addition to these episodes, it's really easy. Just go to my website at nonprofitleadershippodcast.org and simply type your email address in the top right-hand box, and you'll be added to our monthly email update. And this way, you'll never miss any of the interviews or extra content from this show. And if you have any questions or comments, do not hesitate to email me. Thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. Well, I love your thoughts on that. I love the fact you're bringing the community together, both investor and uh, the receiver on the other end for figuring out how to structure these investments. That's fantastic. And I don't think there's that many groups that I'm aware of uh, that are doing that. So way to go for you to send a great message of this is the way to do it, uh, where it's a win-win on both sides. Now, mission, uh, for all nonprofit leaders, mission drift is a very real thing, right? That, that can be an issue that every nonprofit I- executive director or CEO, they deal with that. Every organization over time, particularly the longer the organization gets, you know, is around, there's always that danger of mission drift and going into some area that, hey, maybe you'll get some funding for it, but it's really not your mission. You work with executive directors as well as nonprofit organizations when you invest in them to help them not do that, but actually to invest in something that really fits the founder's mission. So how do you go about picking the model that works best to make sure it matches that organization's mission? Mission drift is a, is a huge issue. And the, the best definition I know of leadership is from the creative center of leadership and is direction, alignment, commitment, right? Making sure that you have clarity around the direction, which is the mission, and then aligning everybody in the resources and making sure that, that everyone's committed. So talking about direction, the mission, and how it could drift, it is in particular a, a huge risk for not-for-profit organizations because, as you said, you may receive a check for, to do something that helps pay the bills. It's just not exactly what you want to be doing. The way that, that we work with our portfolio organizations and the, the borrowers out of the Social Investment Fund 
is that we do a regular check-in, not only on the financial health of the organizations, but also on mission, on values, and making sure, and on impact, obviously, making sure that we have a conversation about it. And we have asked borrowers to leave because of mission drift. So that's where the rubber meets the road, right? So you can have a conversation about it, but if in the end, it just doesn't line up with the intention of our investors in the fund and of RSFs and RSFs promoted mission, then if we see mission drift in our portfolio companies, we will ask them to refinance. And we do, we do do that. In terms of advice to nonprofit leaders about how to prevent mission drift, what I have seen both in for-profit and non-profit organizations is those that really get into trouble and can't pay the bills anymore and are, are on the verge of, of not making it. And I'm, I'm not talking about people getting into trouble because COVID hit or, you know, some major external event hit, but those that, that are in serious cash flow issues that usually proceeds or, or um, that usually is preceded by a crisis in strategy, like not really knowing how to do it, which is usually preceded by an identity crisis and not having clarity on the mission. So, and it's, it's, it's kind of, tra- you know, back trace, tracing back the spiral to where the issues originated. So in my view, cash flow issues and financial health are a direct consequence to staying true to the mission long-term. Short-term, it may not seem like it, but long-term, it does. Now, if nobody is willing to fund your mission, you have a problem, of course. So then the question needs to be, do we have the right mission? You know, is this really something that the world wants and, and people are willing to support? Mission drift, I see it as one of the things that ultimately gets organizations into trouble because it, you stop aligning the resources around the actual direction of the organization and, and, and risk the core business. Excellent answer. I think that is really, for all my listeners, so important to hear. So I encourage my listeners to take notes if you aren't already, because that's so important about Mission Drift and how you have helped work with organizations to the point of if organizations are drifting on their mission, you actually ask them to not to basically no longer finance that organization. I think that's really getting down to the heart of the matter. All right, now we've already said this, RSF enables investors and donors to put their money to work for positive social and environmental impact. Now, how do you go about choosing which projects in which to invest? So we have three focus areas that you could find on our website and everywhere in in all our materials. They are education and the arts, climate and environment, and then food and agriculture, which is basically natural products and food systems support. So we have an industry focus and we have expertise in those areas. We understand what it's like to operate an organization in those, in those areas. So that's a first lens um, for our loans. And then another lens that we very consciously look at is, you know, what is the, what's the overall social and or environmental impact that this organization has? What, what is their stated mission? What does success look like for them? And, you know, in terms of, of, for instance, workforce development, social racial justice, supporting not only social enterprises that support marginalized communities, but also BIPOC entrepreneurs, 
so those are all lenses um, that we apply. They're not exclusive lenses, right? But those are elements that we look um, um, look for and look at. And then, you know, we we um, obviously also look at the size of an organization, life stage. We we typically don't do startups, but we're looking for a few years of operating history. There need to be some assets to to make sure that uh, that alone is possible. So there are some hard criteria. And then it is really, and that's quite unique, then is really what is the community that surrounds that social enterprise? Who are the people? Uh, we're very relationship-based. So, and this may sound wishy-washy, it is not. It's a very, um, it, it's also a very data-driven approach. So certainly pre-COVID and post-COVID, that will be the case, this way, case as well. Our lending team goes on a site visit with every single borrower, and we spend real time with them, getting to know people, um, getting to know the players, not only getting to know an executive director or a CEO, but really getting a feel for the place. We really want to understand what their business model looks like, which on the one hand helps us to really support them with integrated capital tools. So it's not only a check, right? It's also who do we have in our network who might be a good fit for something they need? Are there people within our community that we could connect with them? So there's not only the monetary capital, there's also the social and network capital that we really want to put to work to support um, the organizations that we lend to. Excellent. Again, answer. Very good to know. I'm thinking that maybe some of my listeners may say, hey, we would love to have you consider investing in our organization because we have some great organizations represented by the show. Now, another thing that I like to dive into a bit is your mission when it comes to the equity piece. Um, Let me explain. Uh, Your organization states that you envision an economy rooted in equity, healing, and interconnectedness. In fact, your mission is to circulate capital to social enterprises for a more just, regenerative, and compassionate world. I think almost everyone would say, yes, more of that, please. That's wonderful. Good. Yeah, I I think so. But how do you do this practically? And what barriers have you run into as you've sought to really live out that mission? Great question. So there, there are a couple of elements to this. One is it doesn't only matter what is being funded, right? So what the organizations do, many of your listeners that, you know, in the nonprofit world, they do amazing work. And thank, you know, I want to thank them for doing that amazing work. That's fantastic. That matters. That's the first thing. But that's not the only thing. It also matters who makes the decisions in those organizations. So who are the people actually making the decisions? And so that is something that we look at. So what's the makeup of a management team? What is the makeup of a board, for instance? There's a, you know, there's a huge justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion element to that. So for us, we, we are definitely not preaching, but want to be on a consciousness journey with everybody else around this topic. And as, as you can see, Rob, RSF is a white-led organization, right? So as a white male... I also want to just acknowledge that it's important to to ask the question like what are what are things that I may not be seeing or that we may not be seeing that uh, people with a different lived experience will see and will will note so we we really apply that also in looking at our borrowers and looking at the organizations that that we help fund so it's not only the what it's also who right who are the people who are making who are making the decisions, and then also how are decisions being made? 
our, the way that we set our pricing is one example. So how can we have a relationship-driven approach to this and a collaborative approach to how decisions are being made? And also in the philanthropic work that RSF does. So I mentioned that we have donor advised funds as well and administer, you know, the donor advised fund accounts of about 300 individuals and organizations. We are in active conversation with them about how are philanthropic decisions being made and what kind of strings attached, you know, come attached with a grant. Is it a transactional way of, of doing philanthropy? Or is it really a free gift? And we're a huge proponent for operating support with no strings attached and no reporting, right? Just share with us what you were able to do. That is one way also in, in, in which we try to promote equity and a different way of working with money. Look, money and power have always been connected, you know? Um, they've always been, been so connected and we are trying to decipher that fraught relationship between power and money. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Yasper, thank you so much. I have a feeling that my listeners will want to find out a little bit more about you and RSF. So how could they do that? What's the best way to connect with you on social media, perhaps, or just online with you personally and or your organization? I would love to hear from your listeners. So my email is on the website and uh, people can just go to rsfsocialfinance.org and go to the about section. And then under team, there's my email address, my phone number. I would love it um, if your listeners would consider RSF as one of the possible organizations if they need a loan or if they have a loan and they want to refinance it. It's one thing to have a loan from, from a bank, from a friendly banker. And by all means, we totally respect that. It's another thing to have a loan from an organization that's really values aligned and that's aligned with the mission that you work for every day. Thanks again for taking time to be on the show today. Thank you so much, Rob. I so appreciate your show. Thank you. Hey, friends, I wanted you to know that this podcast can be found on both iTunes and Spotify. If you're wondering how to find it, just type in the words Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, and this podcast should show up. We also encourage you, when you go on iTunes, let us know what you think. Give us a review. Give us a rating. We would love to hear what you think of this podcast, and your feedback will help expand this podcast to get it out to as many people as possible. You can also find other resources and interviews of past guests on my website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Again, that website is non nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep making your world better. This podcast is sponsored by DonorBox. DonorBox, helping you help others with the best donation forms in the business.